1: This Day in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Hello, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that proves it's never too late to right the wrongs of history. I'm Gabe Lusier, and in this episode, we're talking about the day when one of the last color barriers in American sports was finally broken. The day was November 9th, 1961. The Professional Golfers Association of America ended its long-standing ban on non-white members. As one of the world's largest sports organizations, the PGA of America held a lot of sway in professional golf, just as it does today. Without a membership, players weren't allowed to compete in the PGA's exclusive events which happened to be some of golf's biggest and most prestigious competitions. By denying membership to everyone except white players, the PGA stunted the careers of countless athletes of color and damaged the sport's reputation for decades to come. The PGA's exclusionary rule had been written into its constitution in 1943, nearly three decades after the organization's founding. It took the form of a single clause added to the eligibility terms for membership, which then read as follows, Professional golfers of the Caucasian race, over the age of 18 years, residing in North or South America, and who have served at least four or five years in the profession, shall be eligible for membership. The first significant challenge to the ban came five years later, in 1948. At the time, only three professional golf tournaments allowed minorities to participate. The LA Open, the Canadian Open, and the Tam All-American. None of those events were officially sanctioned by the PGA, but in the case of the LA Open, the top 60 players would automatically qualify to play in the Richmond Open, which was a PGA event. In 1948, two African-American golfers met that qualifying threshold. Bill Spiller finished 34th in the LA Open, and Ted Rhodes finished 21st. But when the men tried to claim their rightful spots at the Richmond Open, the PGA barred them from playing because they weren't members. They would have gladly joined, of course, but because of the organization's racist policy, they weren't allowed to. At that point, Spiller and Rhodes hired an attorney and filed a lawsuit against the PGA of America. They alleged that the organization had violated labor laws by preventing the black players from earning a living. PGA President Horton Smith later convinced the pair to drop the lawsuit. In exchange, he promised to eventually change the Caucasians-only clause, and in the meantime, he would allow minorities to compete in events designated as OPENS. However, as you probably guessed, Smith didn't hold up his end of the deal. The exclusionary clause remained in the PGA Constitution, and while he didn't ban black players from open tournaments, he did encourage sponsors to rebrand the events as Open Invitationals, and then to only invite white golfers to play. Thankfully, the organizers of the San Diego Open either missed that memo or disregarded it on purpose. In 1952, The first year that tournament was held, Bill Spiller and Ted Rhodes were both invited to play. They were joined by another talented black golfer, recently retired heavyweight boxer Joe Lewis. He had also been invited to the San Diego Open, not as a qualifying participant like Spiller and Rhodes, but as an amateur exempted by the sponsor. However, When the PGA heard about these invitations, Horton Smith stepped in and blocked all three men from taking part in the tournament. That move sparked the second significant challenge to the PGA's racial ban. Joe Lewis went straight to the press and used his clout as a former heavyweight champion to spread the story far and wide. The resulting public outcry led the PGA to relent ever so slightly. While Spiller and Rhodes were still barred from playing in San Diego, Joe Lewis was allowed to participate as an amateur player, making him the first African-American golfer to take part in a PGA-sponsored event. Lewis made the most of his time in the spotlight, using the event as a chance to denounce what he described as the racial prejudices of golf, the last sport in which they still exist. In addition to letting Lewis play the tournament, the PGA tried to appease the public by announcing a change to its guidelines. While black golfers would remain ineligible for PGA membership, they could compete in its tournaments if they were invited by a sponsor and approved by the host club. That proved to be yet another toothless change, as both of those conditions were rarely met. That said, some black golfers, including Ted Rhodes, Charlie Sifford, and a few others, were invited to a handful of PGA tournaments each year after that. As for Bill Spiller, the injustice he endured eventually soured his view of professional play, and he began working as a caddy at the Hillcrest Country Club in California. It was in that capacity that Spiller met acclaimed political writer Harry Braverman in 1960. Braverman couldn't believe that someone with as much talent and skill as Spiller had been reduced to carrying clubs for amateur players like himself. He urged Spiller to contact California Attorney General Stanley Mosk and bring him up to speed on the PGA's discriminatory practices. Spiller took that advice, and Mosk responded by telling the PGA it could no longer host events on California's public golf courses until it repealed its whites-only policy. Attorney General Mosk didn't stop there either. He encouraged other states to enact similar bans and began trying to get the PGA kicked out of California's private golf courses as well. One year later, the PGA of America finally bowed to the mounting public pressure and looming boycotts. At its annual meeting on November 9, 1961, the Caucasian Race Clause was officially removed from the group's constitution. Not long after, Charlie Sifford became the first black member of the PGA of America and the first black player to compete in the PGA Tour as a professional. Then, just three years later, Pete Brown became the first African-American golfer to win a PGA Tour event. Those pioneering players, and others like them, continued to face abuse and intimidation in many of the towns where they played. But they played just the same. Their determination ensured that future minority golfers would have an easier time breaking into the sport, including Tiger Woods, who many now consider the greatest golfer in modern history. But for older players like Bill Spiller and Ted Rhodes, the wheels of progress turned too slowly, and neither got to join the PGA in their lifetime. However, in 2009, a contrite and much more welcoming PGA of America granted posthumous membership to both men, as well as honorary member status to Joe Lewis. It was a bittersweet gesture, but one long overdue. I'm Gabe Lusier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have a second and you're so inclined, consider keeping up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can find us at Show. And if you have any comments or suggestions you'd like to share, you can reach me directly by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class.